0: Welcome to the Joseph Smith Podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, featuring more than a half century's worth of devotionals and forums, exploring the prophet's life and teachings. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches, wherever you get your podcasts, or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. In our dispensation, there have been three classic scriptural statements about spiritual gifts, what they are, where they come from, and the spirit in which they are to be sought and manifested. Those three sources are section 46 of the Doctrine and Covenants, the tenth chapter of Moroni, which is also the last chapter of the Book of Mormon, and Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 12. These are interrelated and can be studied profitably by comparison. If one goes through instead the scriptures as history and simply makes note of ways in which the Spirit of God has been manifested in the lives of men, he finds at least 30 such ways. In his account, Of these gifts in section 46, the Prophet records these two verses, which indicate that, first of all, each of us is entitled to one, at least. As the Prophet put it elsewhere, a man, he could well have said a woman, a man or a woman who has none of these gifts has no faith and he deceives himself if he supposes he has. Orson Pratt made the same comment in a different way. No one, he said, who receives the Holy Ghost is left destitute of a spiritual gift. One follows from the other. The other verse has to do with their meaning and need. The Lord says that ye may not be deceived. Seek ye earnestly the best gifts, always remembering for what they are given. For they are given for the benefit of those who love me and keep my commandments. And then a very happy phrase, and him that seeketh so to do. So that not only those who are really living the commandments can hope for these gifts, but those who are trying seeking, then the warning, always remembering for what they are given, and then the caution, not to be sought for a sign or to consume it upon their lusts. In the same revelation, the Lord promises that unto some—unto the bishop, for example, and unto such as are called to preside in the Church—it is given to have All those gifts, the Prophet elsewhere said, Pray for the presiding elder that he may receive the gift of discernment—precious, almost indispensable gift for any leader in the Church. But to son it is given to have all, not just one, but all of these gifts. With that, as a premise, I have gone through the life of the Prophet Joseph Smith. And singled out instances in his own life when these gifts were manifest. And no surprise, he did in fact experience all of the list of spiritual gifts. I'm going to do this in a kind of serial fashion, mentioning some of the more prominent and in some cases the less well-known experiences of the Prophet, all in an effort to increase our awareness of possibilities spiritually and to increase our recognition that the prophet was indeed a prophet of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first gift mentioned is the gift of exceeding great faith, Real nice phrase, as section 46 puts it, to some it is given to know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he was crucified for the sins of the world. Prophet Joseph Smith had exceeding great faith. We have the demonstration over and over of the such tests as endurance perseverance. But we also have, just in the outset, his testimony that, on the reading of a verse, one wonders if James himself could have realized as he wrote it way back in the first century the impact it would have. One verse, But let him ask in faith nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind, and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. We are quite often willing to say what we would like to receive of the Lord. What we would do for it, maybe not as eager to say what we will do with it once given. The prophet proved himself willing on both counts. In connection with that gift, it is said, to some it is given to believe on their words, meaning those who have great faith and testify, that they also might have eternal life if they continue faithful. One way to read that is that some people are gifted to know, and others are gifted to believe on what they know, or to put it differently, that some people are in the second-hand testimony class. My own conviction is that that is a preparatory gift, that it is not sufficient unto itself, that you cannot live and endure and overcome simply on the basis of believing the word of another, but that sooner or later. And preferably sooner, you too will come to first hand and direct knowledge of yourself. That the prophet did believe on the word of others. That he was sponsored and nourished and strengthened thereby. That he poured over the records of the past until they became part of his nature is altogether clear. A study, for example, of his sermons on the question of how often He slips almost inadvertently into the language of the New Testament, which showed that a great proportion of his thinking and feeling were conditioned in the Pauline phrases especially, but also the gospel of John and other New Testament books. The same would go for the Old Testament, and such books as he himself became instrument in translating. He trusted the revealed. Word. And in that sense, proved himself a believer secondhand. Then there is, of course, the gift of prophecy, the gift of anticipating future events. The late Elder Johnny Witso, after a study of the Doctrine and Covenants, concluded that the prophet had made at least 1,500 statements about the future. If one extends beyond simply the doctrine and covenants to others, to the personal promises he gave in blessings, to the comments he gave in sermons, to his counsels in the midst of his own brethren in sometimes private and sacred circumstances, and to things that he wrote in letters, it would exceed far at fifteen hundred. He once said that the Lord told me that when I was weighed down with trouble and could see no way out, to prophesy, and he would bless me with the spirit of prophecy and with the power to see it come to pass. One can discern, therefore, in his life times when he was in that condition as the symptom or the background of his then uttering a prophecy. For example, in Kirtland, in that period of mass apostasy, more than half of the Church falling away and many of the Twelve. He arose in tears after prayer in a meeting one night and said, I prophesy that those who have called me a fallen prophet will, by next Sabbath, have a testimony that the Lord is still with his Church and still with me. It happened, and those many who had the experience bore their witness in later testimony meetings. Prophecy can be a burden as well as a blessing. For as one commits himself in the Spirit to a certain course of action or a certain counsel of the Lord, he is by that very process responsible to do all within his power to bring it to pass. It was in the case of Joseph Smith, as it was in perhaps the second most prophetic man of our history, Heber C. Kimball, that he often. Even in trivial circumstances, slipped into a prophetic mode. As trivial, for example, as the question of whether it was going to rain enough to wet their shirt sleeves in the grove as they listened to a discourse, or whether they should break ranks while in the Nauvoo Legion and return to their homes. He would sometimes say, It will not rain, and he would sometimes say, I prophesy that it will, you've only got a few minutes, go. He often said to those who Criticized to those who argued that there was no such thing as prophecy, ancient or modern. The New Testament says, he's quoting John, that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I am a servant of Jesus Christ. I have a testimony of Jesus. Therefore, I am a prophet. Occasionally, he tied his enemies into a logical paradox. He would say, Have ye discovered that there is no revelation? How? And they would say, Does not the Bible end all revelation? He would reply, If so, there is a great defect in the book, or else it would have said so. Have ye turned revelators? He said on one occasion. Then why deny revelation? You see, it takes revelation to know that there will be no more revelation. As a prophet... He said things which to me are keys that never rust. It is an expression he himself used. I will give you a key that will never rust, meaning that what he said would last in its power to the end of time. May I name a few examples? In the midst of the leadership struggle, the mass apostasy of a group in Nauvoo led by William Law and the claim of others to have special prerogatives of leadership, he said, This is a test. Always go with the majority of the Twelve and with the records of the Church. Not one offshoot group—not one—can pass that test. How many were on the stand, for example, at Nauvoo in August 1844, after the prophet's death, when a man, Sidney Rigdon, wanted to be the guardian and, in effect, the leader of the Church? How many of the Twelve were on the stand when the decision was made to follow the Twelve? Answer? Seven. A bare majority, Two had not yet come back from missions to the East. Again and again in our history, the Twelve in Unity— have made the revelatory decisions under the prophet which have been binding upon us all. And the records, well, which records are most important? Likely, I suggest, those in the archives of the temple. We have them. We preserve them. And they are a mark of the authentic transmission of divine authority and power to our day. A prophetic statement lasting to our day. Some have heard me recall the statement to Lillian Fries—I'm not sure she was there firsthand—utterly preposterous when he uttered it, and I found it incredible when I read it twenty years ago. He said, The time will come when only Latter-day Saint women will be willing to have children. It's happening under our eyes. He said on another occasion, The Saints will be driven and suffer. But they will go to the Rocky Mountains, and they will become a great—and one version of that is not a great and mighty—a great and wealthy people. Whatever you may think of your status economically compared to the rest of the world, you are wealthy. A great and wealthy people, and they will be tried much more by riches than they have ever been tried by poverty. It is happening under our very highest. He was prophetic in the things he said to individuals. Your name, he said to Brigham Young, shall be known for good or evil, just as Moroni had said to him. It is so. He said to Eliza Arsnow, you will yet live to go to Jerusalem. She wrote it and forgot it. It came to pass. You will not die, he said to Dan Jones, one of his last prophecies at Carthage, but will go on a mission to Ireland and do a great work. Dan Jones converted over 50, 15,000 in Ireland. You will live to see Israel triumph and in peace, he said to young Johnny Smith, 15, his feet bloody from drilling with the Nauvoo Legion. Or there was that beautiful moment when Demick Huntington, in a shoe shop, is working on the Prophet's boots, and the Prophet begins to recount things that Demick had done for him, mostly physical and comforting things, rowing the boat until his hands were blistered across the Mississippi, carrying messages, as the scriptures have it, hewing wood and drawing water. But the prophet was grateful and finally said, O Dimmick, for all these things you have done for me, ask what you will, and I will give it to you, even if it be the half of my kingdom. Dimmock did not want to impoverish the prophet of anything And so he said something else. Joseph, and he said it with his whole soul, Joseph, I want that where you and your family are, meaning of course eternity, there I and my family may be also. The prophet put his head down a moment, as if in meditation, and then looked up, Dimmick, in the name of Jesus Christ. It shall be, even as you ask." The brother of Dimmick was named William. One night the Prophet, learning from Shadrach Roundy, that a mob was on the way up the river. Shadrach Roundy, by the way, had what they called a rascal-beater—we would call it a billy club—stood at the Prophet's gate. That wasn't enough against twenty men. The Prophet went down the street to William's house, woke him up, and said, "'A mob is coming. Counsel me. William said, I know what to do. You climb in my bed. I'll go back and get in yours. That was done. They came. They grabbed him. They took him. And it wasn't until they were down the river on the raft that they discovered they had the wrong man. And then their viciousness knew no bounds, and in wrath they beat him and left him. When he finally staggered into his own home and awoke the prophet, the prophet embraced him and said with all the power of his soul, William, you will never taste death. There were times I could tell you how that prophecy was fulfilled. To be able, in the name of Jehovah, to so prophesy was both the blessing and the burden of Joseph Smith. Brethren, this is Wilford Woodruff's recollection. Brethren, I have enjoyed what you have said, but you no more comprehend the destinies of this Church than a little child on its mother's lap. Brethren, this Church will fill North and South America. Brethren, this Church eventually will fill the whole earth. Related to that prophecy, he once said, you can build all the chapels you want, but you will never have enough to hold the Latter-day Saints. Discernment. Pray for the presiding elder that he may have this gift, the Prophet said. Discernment—the recognition of the spirit that actuates a person. The way I know in whom to confide, the prophet said once, God tells me in whom I may place confidence. Jesse N. Smith records, When in his presence I felt that he could read me through and through. Wilford Woodruff says that on an occasion he met him on the street, the prophet took his hand, held him, and said, Wilford, and then paused and seemed to be searching his soul, and then said, I'm glad to see you. I hardly know these days who are my friends and who are my enemies. A man assigned to be, as it were, undercover came to Nauvoo, tried to work his way into the good graces of the Prophet, and having done so, he thought, invited him out for a walk. And On the crest of a hill, the Prophet stopped him and called him by name and said, I know your plan. Do not make a move, or I will demonstrate the power of God to you. Go your way. It was true. He had planned a kidnap and went away cursing. He once said in a letter it is impossible to hide a bad spirit from the eyes of those who are faithful. It will show itself in our speech and in our writing and in all our other conduct. It is also in vain to make great pretensions when the heart is not right. The Lord will expose it to his faithful Saints. Now, he set up the law of witnesses, which requires that evidence and testimony must be used before a man or a woman can be convicted. But the recognition that something is wrong or that something is right, that is of the Spirit. And he had it. He once prayed to know if a choir director there in Nauvoo was singing unto the praise of God. The Lord made known to him that the man was immoral. And shortly the man resigned and left. He was discerning. He trusted many beyond their trustworthiness. Brigham Young thinks to give them ample rope. But the Brigham himself once said, following the spirit of the prophet, you know, if a man speaks, he may be as smooth as oil. But if he has not the spirit, he will not edify the saints, and there will be many inquiries after him. And Brigham added, I give that as a key. Joseph. Discerned. Dreams. There are dreams that result from pressure, from diet, from anxiety. Some psychological research indicates that we all need to dream, and that our own mental health depends upon it. But there are also dreams sent of the Lord. It is one of the spiritual gifts. Being warned in a dream. Joseph fled with Mary and Jesus. Into Egypt. The wife of Pilate had a dream. Gave her such anxiety she fled with her husband not to take action against the Messiah. But as you recall, he washed his hands. Anyway, Joseph did have prophetic dreams. I mention only two to Levi Hancock, he once said, and Hancock had started on a mission, been out a night, had a terrible night of nightmares, and returned in fear. The prophet said to him, Go. I've had as bad dreams as ever you had. The Lord comforts men through dreams, whether it means anything or not. And then came the dream, the ugly, ominous dream. This at Carthage, you recall, in which he saw William and Wilson Law and others. They cast him in a pit, a pit higher than his head, no way he could climb or spring out of it. And then shortly they, both of them, are attacked by serpents and are dying. They cry out for his help. And all he can say is, I would help you if I could, but you have made it impossible for me to help. All too true to what happened. William and Wilson Law, you may recall, were the leading spirits in the Nauvoo Expositor and in the meetings of conspiracy that culminated in the Prophet's death. Visions—visions visions in open daylight, waking, as we say, visions. That occur in the night. Did he have visions? It is more than my meat and drink, he once said, to make the saints of God comprehend the visions that flow like an overflowing surge before my mind. Frustrated at times in his effort to teach, abundant testimony of how affected he was, and yet he felt, as he said to John Taylor, like he was shut up in a peanut shell. He felt like the moment he moved into something that countered the traditions that people had accumulated. They flew apart like glass. He once said in frustration, getting anything in the heads of this generation, and he was talking about the saints, is like cutting hemlock knots, using a corn dodger for a wedge and a pumpkin for a beetle. Now that's 19th century, I'll explain. Hemlock knots are tough. If you had a wedge to go at them made of cornmeal, a pancake made of cornmeal, that were your wedge. And if the thing you tried to drive it in with, was a pumpkin. You know how well you might do at splitting hemlock nuts. That is how effective he felt his teaching sometimes was. And yet the Lord did reveal and unfold, line by line, the whole plan. He said on one occasion, I have the whole plan of the kingdom before me. And he could have added, no one else does. Everyone else had parts. Fragments, pieces, but over the training period the Lord gave Joseph Smith, he had it all. Visions, some of them were panoramic. He said of the section we call section 76, I reveal a hundred times more of glory if the saints were prepared and if the Lord would permit. Well, a hundred times the present length of that revelation would be the full length of the Doctrine and Covenants. More knowledge stored in his mind than I believe in any intellect since the time tested. Yet he often said, I am not learned, but I have good feelings as any man. Learned he was not in the standard bookish and university sense, but taught by the greatest teachers in the universe. He was. And it will not do, if one is speaking out of his maturity, to say that Joseph was an ignorant farm boy. He had by that time become a very informed, enlightened, and divinely taught man. The way to get truth and wisdom, he once said, is not to seek it from books but to go to God in prayer and obtain divine teaching. He also said that an open vision would reveal that which was more important, but he also added. Do not feel under any obligation or condemnation for not understanding a vision. The Lord holds himself responsible to teach you and interpret what he reveals. Now, As for the principles he had that placed him in communion with ancient worthies, John Taylor said he was as familiar with the ancient prophets and apostles and patriarchs, with even those of the Book of Mormon, as we are. With one another. Examples. He sat down to breakfast one morning and said to Hiram, Hiram, you look more like Seth than anyone I've ever seen. (laughs) School of instruction in Kirtland, someone's talking about Paul. He says, Paul, oh yes, Paul. Paul was about five feet a little more high, had dark eyes, dark skin, and black hair. He, when he spoke, tended to whine, except when he was elevated when his voice resembled the roar of a lion. He was as great an orator as any of his time. How did he know that? I have known a few scholars who claim to be the world's leading experts on Paul. There is one man, I suspect, that knows more than they, and that was Paul. He is the one who taught Joseph Smith. There are records of some of the ancient worthies who manifested themselves to the Prophet Joseph, declaring their, as he put it, keys and glories and dispensations, and making possible the welding of authorities in this dispensation. He knew Peter. He knew James. He knew John. He knew Adam and Eve. He knew Abraham. He knew Enoch. He spoke often of Nephi, Nephi, son of Lehi, and also, or Nehi, and also Nephi, son of Helaman, the leading disciple of the twelve on the American continent. He spoke of these, I repeat, John Taylor says, as familiarly as we speak of one another. visions of the past as well as the future. He knew things about the past as a seer, which are not even part of our own scripture, but which he occasionally spoke of in discourses. Suffice it to say that this was a visionary man in the best and highest sense. Tongues. Did the Prophet Joseph Smith ever speak in tongues? He did. Brigham, you remember, meets him for the first time. They have a meeting. Brigham is called upon to pray, and in the course of his prayer speaks in an unknown tongue. The meeting ends. The Saints crowd around the prophet to ask, Was that of God? He replies, It was. And then he says, I feel the spirit of what Brother Brigham said, and I want to speak. And he does. And then he said, in effect, according to Joseph Young, The tongue in which Brigham prayed and in which I have spoken. Is the tongue spoken by our parents in the Garden of Eden. And when the full restoration occurs, and the cities of the righteous, including the city of Eni, return to this earth, we, all of us, will speak and hear that tongue. As for interpreting tongues, the prophet once was again attacked, subpoenaed, and being let out, the saints, some of them began to cry, and then at the door, a sister, her name was Cleveland, spoke, and The Prophet listened intently, and when she was through, he said, Do not fear, Sister Cleveland says I shall be acquitted. She had spoken in tongues and had prophesied. He was tried, and he was acquitted. It is recorded by John Nicholson that on an occasion the Prophet gave a blessing to one of the Pratts, and In the course of the blessing, he spoke in an unknown tongue and named several worlds which he, as a servant of the Most High, should visit and minister to their inhabitants. One of the cries I hear as I travel is that what we need in this generation is a religion for the space age, a religion that isn't just earthbound, but that takes account of the vast universe we now know about. The prophet Joseph Smith revealed a religion for the space age, for the cosmos, for the whole universe, and that cost him, in part, opposition and his life. Interpretation of tongues then he had. To heal and to be healed, those are separate gifts. The prophet Joseph was called upon over and over to administer, sometimes with oil, sometimes not, to those who were sick, in his own family and beyond it. On the occasion now known in history as the Day of God's power, at Montrose, you remember, he himself arose from a sick bed of cholera, went across the river, and there were dozens, if not hundreds, who were healed. His own journal says only, This day many of the saints were raised up by the power of God. He does not say, And I was the major instrument. We learn from others' journals that he led that procession of faith. We know that at times he gave counsel to the brethren in this matter, pled with them, according to Parley P. Pratt on one occasion, to cease exercising the forms without the power. How one does that, short of having mighty faith, I do not know. He said to them, On an occasion, four of you—this was to Joseph Young—should gather around this person, take turns in blessing, until one of you receives the Spirit sufficiently to make divine promise. They did precisely that, and on the third round, Hiram, the prophet's brother, had the Spirit, made the promise, and the man was healed. There were times when he had to repeat in giving blessings. My own great-grandfather, Jedediah M. Grant, had dyspepsia, probably close to what we would now call a stomach ulcer. He would feel better for a time, the Prophet would administer, and then the pressures and anxieties would arise. Things would eat on him, and he would be back in the same condition. On one occasion, the Prophet said, Jedediah, if I could always be with you, I could cure you. Something of a testimony to the serenity of soul that the Prophet had and knew. Something also of the faith he recognized in Jedediah that, with that example and that personal presence, he might overcome this uneasiness of stomach. But was the prophet himself faithful sufficiently that he was ever healed? Yes, repeatedly. He once was poisoned, asked admittedly for administration, and so violently vomited that his jaw was thrown out of joint. He recovered. He was once, as you recall, on Zion's camp with his brother, having prophesied that because the camp was not repentant and not behaving as should a modern camp of Israel, that some of them would die. In an account, it says, he said, even as sheep die by the rot—terrifying statement. And Thirteen did. And in spite of his prophecy, he yearned to go and heal and tried, and then was himself smitten with cholera. And he and Hiram together felt its ravages, fell down, prostrate together, and prayed for deliverance. Even at that moment Mother Smith was praying for them, as they later learned, and they asked for a testimony that the Lord would relieve them and overcome. It came, and within minutes they arose, free of a disease which in other cases was fatal. To have knowledge—a spiritual gift—and to teach it, to have wisdom and to teach it, I believe that is four gifts. I think it's possible for a person to know much and be rather ineffective in teaching. What's the distinction between knowledge and wisdom? I know of no final scriptural definition. But clearly, just to have a lot of knowledge, and the prophet once said, to be puffed up with knowledge, however useless. It's not as vain as pride in other areas. Wisdom is something else. Wisdom is the insight that comes out of genuine first-hand experience. I suggest to you that those who say that Joseph Smith seemed to possess—and Edward Stevenson says that—almost an infinity of knowledge. Those who say, like Wilford Woodruff, that Joseph Smith was like a bed of gold concealed from human view and that only God could comprehend his like Enoch's soul. And those who said that he could circumscribe the wisest elder and know his very thoughts And those who said that to hear him teach and testify was so powerful that no other man in the kingdom, then or since, could match it. All that gives us indication of knowledge and the fulfillment of the promise given him in 1833 that he would have power to be mighty in testimony. His testimony almost shook the earth. Loren Farr said to his son, I am told, Oh, my son, I have sorrow that you will never hear the gospel of Jesus Christ taught in power. What he meant was that Joseph Smith was dead and gone, and that though there were giants in the kingdom, none of them could command the power of heaven as he stood between heaven and earth in witness-bearing of testimony and knowledge. He had knowledge, and he taught it. He was not a natural orator. Others of the brethren were more eloquent in the flowery sense. Sidney Rigdon certainly was. Parley Pratt was. Others were more orderly and organized. Orson was. Others were more practical in their counsel. Brigham Young was. But it is a testimony again to the prophet's greatness that all of these, his superior in one way or another, yet sustained him as the greatest prophet of all time. Jesus Christ himself, being the only exception. Wisdom, I have made this my rule. When God commands, do it. And That took him all the way to Carthage. The gift to voice scripture. The promise came at Harmony when they didn't have paper enough to write the book on, let alone enough to eat. Harmony, Pennsylvania, he and Oliver, and the revelation comes. You'll look at the manuscript someday. We have about a third of it. This piece of paper, yellow, the next page, white, one line, one knot, one torn on the top, another knot. They use scratch paper to translate the marvelous work and a wonder. And if it hadn't been for a barrel of pickerel that one of the night butters brought up for them, they might have starved. And in that setting is this sentence. This generation shall have my word through you glorious and burdensome. There is a story I cannot find the source, it may be apocryphal, that on the way one day to the press, the Grandin Press in New York with another sheaf to be put into type and printed. It came down again on the prophet with a weight that crushed him. What am I doing? Here is a book I am intending to publish as scripture, a book to go side by side with the Bible. How can I do this? And that the voice of the Lord came to him saying, I will bring forth evidence. Ask you nibbly sometime how much evidence has come forth. To voice scripture. So he did. To recognize the diversities of operations and the differences of administration. I do not even understand what those exact phrases mean, but it is possible that the diversities of operations is another way of saying the recognition that the movements, the trends, the activities, the ongoing processes of history, the recognition of which are centered in the light, in the influence of the hand of the living God, and which are simply of man, and which, if any are from the lower regions. This generation the prophet said will not receive the doctrine of spirit communication, but they shall have it. And it shall not be from a good source either. The adversary always sets up his kingdom in opposition to the kingdom of God. And the multiplicity of variegated religions of our generation is indeed a sign of the times. He did recognize He did feel, and it is the testimony of this Church—a First Presidency letter just this month has confirmed it—that we must recognize as Latter-day Saints that the Lord's Spirit has worked upon all generations and all cultures. And By name, they mention some of the great Oriental leaders—the Confucius, the Buddha, and others, as they mention ancient and venerated philosophers—saying they had something of the light and power of God. We are often thought of as a Church bound to be condemned because we are so exclusive. This is the one Church that has the capacity to retain its roots and relate to and eventually embrace all mankind, sifting through the error toward the truth. The Prophet Joseph had that kind of expansive soul. If we do not treasure up all the good and true principles in the world, he said, We shall not come out true Mormons. To have communion with the heavens. To see both angels and spirits. Well, section 107 says that the the very keys of the Melchizedek priesthood is to hold communion with the gentle assembly and church of the firstborn. Who are they? The most righteous who have filled their missions and are now serving worthily in the spirit world. Did he have communion with them? Yes. The only other man in our history with such a richness of communion, at least to some degree, was Wilford Woodruff, who seemed from birth to have that gift and who seemed to live as if with one foot in the spirit world and one foot in this. Only Wilford Woodruff could say as he went down the street in Salt Lake to a brother, Brother Jones, it's good to see you, and then could add as an afterthought, you know... I don't think I've seen your father since he died. Finally, though there are other gifts, I mention the working of miracles. Someone asked the prophet once, What was the first miracle Christ performed? He answered, He created the earth. Miracle is the name we use for the operation of divine power beyond our understanding. It is not a violation of law. Every miracle which Christ performed, including the creation of the earth, was executed in harmony with eternal principles. We will one day know that whatever we call miraculous was in fact lawful. Joseph was promised that upon him would be laid great power. When his father gave him a patriarchal blessing, In 1834, he simply quoted what the ancient Joseph had seen of the future of his posterity and then said that Joseph would be for a time marred by his enemies, but that he would in the end triumph. And his memory, said Joseph, the prophet's father, would be as sweet as the first cluster of the choice ripe grapes magnificent language. Someone was asked, what is the greatest miracle you have seen in the first generation of the Church? And she replied, Joseph Smith. He was himself a God-made man. It will never do to say, as critics now are beginning to say, this man was a genius. So saying, they wish to explain what is a most remarkable movement to its leader, its founder, as they believe, its origin. He was a genius. He was a brilliant man. I have no doubt of it. It takes a brilliant man even to comprehend, let alone to write as he did write, the glorious insights that he saw, even granting that all of them came, the great ones, from the Lord. But beyond that, he was a man of superb intelligence. Nevertheless. That does not explain Mormonism. What explains Mormonism is that Joseph Smith, at his greatest, as a prophet, was not Joseph Smith. He was a prophet made so by the power of God. A modern miracle. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to the Joseph Smith Podcast, presented by BYU Speeches.